Welcome to the Writer's Block Party Podcast with your hosts Meredith Bond and Prue Warren, where they discuss every aspect of a writer's life, from the craft of writing and editing, through publishing and marketing, and finally into building a global publishing empire. Here is Mary and Prue. Hello, and welcome to the Writer's Block Party podcast. I am Meredith Bond, here with my beautiful co-host, Prue Warren. (laughs) And Prue, today we are so excited. We have a special guest. I am beyond thrilled, like a fangirl freaking out here. We have Grace Burrows with us today. Yay! Thank you, Grace, so much for being with us. Let's try to be cool. Try to play cool. Try to play yes. cool. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. <laughs> Grace is one of my auto buys. I mean, any book that she comes out with, you know I'm buying it. <laughs> uh, Regency romance writer. And Grace, do you write any other genres besides Regency? I have written some contemporaries. I've written some Scottish Victorians, um, mm-hmm. but my uh, readership seems to be mostly Regency, and it's what I grew up reading. It's what I am, uh, what I most strongly associate with the romance genre. So I would call it my writing home. Yeah, great. Good. Amazing. And sometimes you go on vacation, but for the most part, when you come home, there you are. I like it. <laughs> So, Grace, you were going to um, tell us a little bit how you got into writing. Well, I suspect that the trail I traveled is one that many authors travel in that we're voracious readers. We read for years, if not decades. And then some moment occurs where we think that pernicious thought, I bet I could write one of these. And uh, for me, it was late at night in the law office. I was supposed to be working on a deadline document that was due the next day. Um, And I'd gotten to the point where, uh, you know, there was just no productivity. It was taking me 20 minutes to do something that should have taken 30 seconds. And I said to myself, I will read one chapter. (laughs) Famous last words. Yeah, put the lawyer hat on. Well, the book I, I had been carrying around with me is my emergency ration book. Um, it turned out to be just, and it was an author I like you, you know, I she wrote it, I bought it. But this book was just not clicking with me, whether it had, you know, crashed in on deadline or the copy editor was asleep or something. I'm and and that's the reason why I said, wait a minute, she's a New York Times bestseller, and this has boo-boos in it and it's kind of tedious in places and hmm I wonder if I could write something at least this good and of course it's not as easy as it looks um, to write a good book but it is more fun than I had anticipated I um I didn't have TV. Uh, At that point, I was a single mom with a tween underfoot. And I just, I agree with my father that anything that encourages us to be sedentary should be viewed with a big side eye. So there was no television in our house. And 
um, this meant that I had all kinds of time to just sit at the computer and play Let's Pretend. And once I started writing, particularly once my daughter was out of the house, the, you know, it was, uh, I think there was so much creative compression gets built up in those years where we're parenting and getting and spending and, um, you know, trying to make progress with the mortgage that once you finally open um, a sluice gate to be creative, whether it's quilting or writing or redecorating the house, you need to stand back because, you know, there's this tremendous compression that is going to release into whatever channel you give it permission to release into. Uh, and for me, that was writing. I was in my mid forties and the words just, they weren't very good words, but yes, they, they gushed <laughs> forth and it was like body surfing. If you've ever body surfed, you are riding the ocean and it's a heck of a rush. Um, when you can catch the wave. Um, so it was joyous and spontaneous and marvelous. And I haven't looked back. And I mean, we are so grateful. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a shame because, you know, as I'm sort of trudging through school, the occasional teacher would say, you write well. And I was kind of like, yeah, well, um, so I write well. Everybody's got to communicate um, some way or another. And uh, I wish I were better at math. <laughs> and I, the whole you write well just went right over my head. And what the point that I missed was, and I love to write. The fact uh -huh. that I will take as much delight in writing an email as I will in an opening scene. I just love it. If my hands are on the keyboard, a part of me is happy. And I had I didn't pay any attention to that at all. It didn't hit my radar. This makes you happy. And I, I think that, too, is a comment on society generally, that we're not to pay attention to what makes us happy. We're to pay attention to what makes us solvent. And, um, you know, later in life, you have the opportunity to reevaluate those balances if you're very lucky. And I'm now at a point where what makes me solvent is also what brings me joy. And I wish I had arrived here 30 years earlier, but we're here now. Dang, you are awesome. Go back five seconds. Your training is in the law? I... Were you an actual lawyer? <laughs> no, I'm serious. I, I'm, I, don't, I don't mean to say that in an in a astonished tone, but I've read your books. <laughs> are you a lawyer? <laughs> There is a sort of an underground network of recovering lawyers who are writing fiction. Um, and when you think about it, well, a lawyer makes a living with words. We're used to deadlines. Um, we're used to sort of the give and take of a critical Socratic dialogue. Um, you know, this argument holds up. That argument is full of baloney. Uh, so I mean, Nalini Singh is a lawyer. Um, J.R. Ward is a lawyer. There, when you start asking Robin around, Covington. me too. Yeah. Yes. They're, they're everywhere. Um, I, uh, my first degree was in music history. My instrument was piano, but I could not perform. I fall apart on a stage at a keyboard. I can talk, but I can't play the piano in front of people. And, uh, you know, so there you are with your little music history degree. What you're going to do? Well, you're also going to get a degree in political science. Ah, 
you can go to law school and, and talk good um, in courtrooms. And my family was a bunch of scientists. I couldn't hack the math. So what do you do to be regarded as legitimate if you can't hack math? Liberal arts law school. And um, so I got a law degree and I bounced out of George Washington's uh, university's law school and uh, had been particularly trained in government procurement law, which is fascinating. It's contract law. Uh, but then I ended up becoming a mother, an unwed mother before it was popular. And I realized I can't live in Washington, D.C. and ever see my kid if I'm going to be a lawyer here. You know, it's 3,000 hours the first year to make partner. And um, I wanted to be around my kid. So I moved uh, to rural Maryland and opened up a small town practice. And I backed into, by default, becoming the attorney for all the foster children in my county. Wow. Became, uh, I specialized in child maltreatment law, which is terrible stuff. And, um, you know, you there's so many people who love their kids but can't take care of them. Um, and, uh, you know, here, here again, I can get on any soapbox um, about <laughs> family values and what makes a family strong and what is a real safety net and community building versus community atomizing. And um, all of these issues for which I have no megaphone find an outlet in books that are primarily about the courage to love and be loved. Because as far as I'm concerned, all the social workers and lawyers and whatever, 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 we need them because we don't have enough love. You know, if you had enough love, you could put all those people out of business. And in, and now I struggle with is the fact that we can call 911 and, you know, get the officers to do a well check, preventing us from going across the street and knocking on our neighbor's door and saying, how are you? I haven't seen the lights come on for three days. Now, are we destroying community as opposed to building community? And I can wrestle with all of these questions in my books. You know, the characters can struggle with, you know, where are my loyalties? What is the right thing to do here? Um, what, what would a loving person do? What would a, a courageous person do versus what do I have the chops to do with all my little baggage? And this is... It is a really good use of a burnout lawyer. Okay, here's our original thought for this edition. This episode of the podcast was to talk about the difference between people who plot and people who pants. And Meredith and I are both plotters and you're a pantser. So my question to you is, first of all, that's alchemy. What you're doing is pure wizardry. But, but the other, my other thought is, if you have been trained in the law, in the Socratic method, in the logic of an argument, how, how do you manage to pants such gorgeous books if you're not, how much of a plan ahead do you have when you sit down? I think there's a continuum of people for whom the plotting process is very conscious and people for whom it's the same process. It just happens a lot more below the conscious waterline. And, you know, some of us are able to see the whole iceberg and jot down an outline and go away and write a book. Whether others of us just get this little dorsal fin of ice. 
And we know there's an iceberg down there. And, you know, but if we bring it up in the wrong circumstance, it's going to melt on us. So I, uh, and whereas you will spend your energy writing and refining an outline, I spend my energy watching for those little sort of uh, floating buoys that tell me there could be a book here. And I have my little, uh, I don't know what you call them, uh, bird whistles for trying to encourage those icebergs to come closer and talk to me. Um, for example, um, I never finish a scene when I, if it's a writing session, I will write to the end of a scene, but I don't stop there. Uh, the mind continues to work on what we do not finish, which is why stay signed in is such a pernicious prompt. Never stay signed in. Um, so I will then, you know, I know I'm done. I've done my 2000 words. What a good girl am I? But then I start the next scene. And if I can manage it, I stop in the middle of a sentence. And then I put it away. Uh -huh. I will read over whatever I have written uh, today. Last thing before I go to bed, I will set my alarm half an hour early and lie in bed with Gus the cat and think about what's the next scene? What makes that scene uncuttable? What does the reader expect? How can I surprise them? Um, and so in those, there are two great words hypnocampic and hypnopompic states as you're falling asleep and waking up you, you that's a time to have a dialogue between um stephen king's boys in the basement and the part of you that would delight in having an outline if only you could have an outline um, so you get that dialogue going um, other things that i do to encourage my creativity um no morning digital rotation. Do not, tech is so insidious and we love it, but it's built to manipulate us. Um, you don't get up and check email and you don't, I have nothing that I own notifies me of anything. I don't have notifications on my phone, nothing. Um, because I don't want to be jabbed um, away from my writing. So You're I get about breaking my addiction to heroin here. I mean, this, that's a big, that's a big change for me. Well, read a book called Hooked. All right. Uh, they, oh, I read Hooked. Yeah. The one uh, by, uh, wait, who's it by? You're, it's uh, not. All right, you guys keep talking. I'll look it up on Amazon. Don't okay. worry, keep going. But, it, you know, our, our devices are programmed to manipulate us. And um, I don't okay, want to do that. a different book than so, I'm thinking of. Uh, I get up in the morning, I feed the cats, I turn on the computer, and I go straight to Word. Well, I've still got some alpha waves wafting around, and I start writing. And that's a luxury, you know? I don't have small kids or a spouse or uh, an out-of-home day job. And I can do that now. For a long time, I had pretty severe insomnia. I would get up and write at four in the morning. But the idea is don't be tempted by tech to abandon your book. Um, your book comes first. Another thing that I do to help keep the books coming, and, and the other thing is um, no distractions. The, I can't do the Pomodoro method. Because one of the ways our brains work, and Pomodoro, for those who don't know, is you sprint for 25 minutes, 
then take a five minute break. And you do this, I think, four times. So you get in a good two hours work and then you take a longer break. Every time you're distracted, the uh, sort of um, effort that it takes to refocus is larger. And the ease with which you can be distracted again is greater. So one distraction sort of opens up a Pandora's box of distractibility. I don't want that. You know, whereas you have an outline to keep you straight, I have these 10 commandments and one of them is, you know, no distractions. Um, so I guard my writing time and space from distractions, which is why, you know, that even that cat sitting there a few minutes ago, she was in peril um, because she was stalking me and, and the door is right behind me. So uh, I have to sort of like a horse with blinders, I have to write no music, no tabs open. Um, and for you, I think that the outline keeps you between the ditches. But without an outline, I have to go, you know, to this sort of minimalist environment um, kind of approach on the one hand. On the other hand, to keep the ideas flowing and to keep me sort of nudging forward, it is imperative that I have novelty in my life because to think new thoughts, you have to give your brain new input. You have to give it new sights. You have to give it new ideas so that the essence of creativity, which is creating connections between seemingly unrelated things, has lots of material to mulch and um, compost. So that means reading widely in the Regency era, reading original sources to get how those people um, use the language, uh, to get their vocabulary, to get um, it means writing with a quill pen, which is effortful because you're writing on much more substantial paper um, and you're uh, there's no smooth roller point ball on the end of that feather. You are actually etching words with ink um, into parchment. And so there, it's a longer distance from your brain down to the page and you have time. I think you tend to write with more refinement. Um, when it's a more physical activity, it means reading physical books, not ebooks, because we recall and integrate what we have read in a physical book more effectively than we do anything we read on a screen. So if How I read that, how do you know that? Is that true? I mean, is that your opinion or is that? That is true. It That's is. Not. I have heard it too. So, really? if, and it, I don't think it means stop reading ebooks for entertainment. Uh, you know, I have my nook, but if I'm reading a biography of Napoleon and I want to grasp the mechanics of his Italian campaign, I'm going to read that in a print book. And um, that's just me. You know, I'm, I'm not a digital native. I think we need tons more studies about that kind of stuff, about, you know, cognition and screens. But for me, there's a real difference. I was a print reader for so long that I, it's still the way I read best. Mm. And uh, so, uh, and there's also uh, apparently something about having to physically turn a page that puts more of a kinesthetic dimension into the process than just scrolling with a finger. And that engages more your brain. Anyhow, you know, these are the little tricks that I, as a pantser, employ uh, to sort of make sure I always have something to write. Um, Somebody did a study of people who think they're lucky, and they found that one of the characteristics of these lucky people is that 
they too court novelty. They don't order the same thing on the menu. They don't take the same route to work every day. They don't always do the um, grocery store in the same pattern. And when you think about it, if you get your brain out of predictive text mode so that you actually have to pay attention to your environment in order to be safe in it, you're going to notice more. And you're going to have more material with which to work, to, to ask questions about, to make connections between. So, you know, I bear that in mind as I'm tooling through my life. It's, uh, I've, always, I've done it this way three times in a row. How can I change it up? Because there's going to be another book to write, and I don't have a burning question to write about. So I need to sort of go off the trail here a little bit and get into some trouble and good trouble, one hopes, and <laughs> find something to write about. I pay a lot of attention to what upsets me. Is that where you me. start with a question? Um, Is that where you start with a burning question? Um, Sorry. Uh, yes, sometimes there is a burning question. Often there is a values conflict. I have a master's in conflict resolution, and the hardest issues to solve are single-issue, two-party values conflicts. Like uh, you and your spouse parent differently. You're a, a spouse who believes children need to learn to handle freedom. Your partner is a spouse who believes a parent's job is to keep children safe. This is tough. This is tough material um, because you're both right. And um, how you keep striking that balance for a three-year-old, for a 13-year-old, for a girl versus a boy, it's an ongoing dialogue. And if that dialogue can't take place in an atmosphere of trust and respect, we're in dangerous waters. So, you know, keeping my little Buster Brown periscope alert for, ooh, that's juicy, or ooh, they're both right, um, makes for good thinking about books. I feel one of the best books I wrote, uh, best series I wrote, uh, was based on, uh, it just occurred to me one day, you know, when men survive violence, they are veterans, they are heroes, they are tough, or they came out of the ring, you know, victorious. When women survive violence, they are victims, they are broken, they are fragile. So I'm going to take a war hero, I'm going to take a domestic violence survivor. And they're both going to have to admit they're heroes, and they're both going to have to admit that they are damaged. Oh, this can be fun. And um, that turned out, I think, to be, you know, we talk about the books that write themselves. When I have a question mm -hmm. that is that elegant and a setup that is that inherently conflicted on that many levels, the book does tend to be easier to write. But it started with, you know, looking so at you two things that are unrelated, uh, domestic violence and war, which we think are unrelated, but they're not. And, you know, putting it into a romantic context, what we do is so, so you don't worry overly much about like the characters, um, goal, motivation and conflict and what they have to learn by the end. That's just all part of your story question. Uh for those who are listening, you didn't see me wince at the phrase goal, motivation, and conflict, <laughs> but I did wince. My uh, approach to sort of book writing generally is do what works for you. And if, and if the GMC chart gets that book written, then all hail the GMC chart. However, 
that chart is largely a product of cinematic stories. If you look at the examples in the in Deb Dixon's book, they are largely movies where it is imperative that you have an external conflict and an external goal because it is a watched story. And the actor rarely, unless it's Tom Jones, um, can turn to the screen and say, you know, I'm really conflicted about this because my brother, when he was 17 years old, came down with chicken pox or whatever. All of the interiority that we can lavish in a book is not possible on the screen. So it, they are different kinds of stories. And no, GMC does not work for me. It gives me the heebie-jeebies. And, uh, and it took me a long time to figure out why. And it is because, uh, as far as I'm concerned, all genre fiction is character-driven. And we're reading it for the character arcs. And in the case of romance, for the relationship arc, because the relationship is the main character. And uh, you will not find a plotting weenie out there who tells you that the relationship is the main character, but it is. And I think it's an allegory for a broken soul eventually healing into one whole, functional, courageous, loving entity. And um, so, yes, I am much concerned with what is the character's defining trauma and what is uh, the situation in which they will be given an opportunity to choose between the safety of their coping mechanisms. When we meet them on page one, they may not be particularly happy, but they've got a plan for how to navigate life. They have their coping mechanisms and they have their you know little sort of bubble of people they can manage. And then here comes love. And by the end of the book, in the middle of the book, they realize they can't go back. Their coping mechanisms were merely adequate. Um, they were going to come at a cost, a cost that on page one was not acknowledged, but by page 237, the character now realizes. Um, and by the big black moment, what happens is the person on page one has to die. Um, that Those sets of coping mechanisms, those that self-imposed blindness, it's gone. You can never have it back. But what is born is the person at the end of the book who is courageous enough and loved enough and loving enough to attempt the impossible and, you know, to cut through whatever Gordian knot was keeping the relationship from blooming um, or becoming permanent. Um, so I have all kinds of structural questions in my head as I write the book. Um, but you know, no matter how many batteries I put in that flashlight, I cannot seem to answer them. I have to write my way to them. I envy people who can write outlines, you know, who who know the punchline when they start the joke. And I just have to sort of flail around and beg the universe and, you know, sacrifice chocolate bars. <laughs> you know, how, what, what is keeping these two people apart? And how can they grow and change so that they can be together with integrity at the end of the book? Grace, does it ever not work? I've never. Do you, ever, you never I, have. No, um, but I've had plenty of scary moments. Um, for example, I got into a situation uh, with, I knew what his problem was. He had this sort of 
secret orphanage that he was supporting. And everybody thought they were his illegitimate kids, but they were just war orphans. But he, he kind of didn't want it brooded about because, you know, the result would be a lot of talk. And he just was a humble man. He was modeled after St. Joseph. And she, on the other hand, you know, she's somewhat outspoken. They fell hard. And I thought, what's keeping them apart? We need something keeping them apart. You know, Joanna Bourne has this magnificent rubric, liking, attraction, and respect pull the couple together. Something real, interesting, and substantial pushes them apart. That's great. What's keeping them apart? And I'm struggling with this book. These two people are so hot for each other and I'm having a great time. Now I'm in the middle of the book and we've all been to bed and it's time for a big black moment. And I got nothing. You know, it's like the, they could have just said, you're the one and we're done on page one. Um, But I ended up in new Orleans at a conference of the national American librarians association it's like 20,000 librarians descend on a convention hall and they all look different and they all look the same and they're all carrying bags of books. And, you know, I do my little panel thing and I'm having beignets because we're in New Orleans. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I don't have a book. I don't have a book. Louisa and Joseph need a conflict. They need an external conflict. Uh, somebody help me out here. And I got nothing. And it's been like this for weeks and deadlines are creeping closer. And, uh, you know, I I think that, you know, this is the book that's finally going to get me. As I'm lying in bed, staring at my hotel room ceiling one morning, it occurred to me, what if Louisa wrote a book of naughty poetry? And these books are all out there floating around. And if anybody ever realizes that she has written this, you know, it's worse than libertine, um, her reputation is shot. And, you know, Joseph will run away in horror. And unbeknownst to her, all of her siblings have been trying to buy up the extant copies, but there's one copy still out there. And, you know, so she is, oh, you know, this, I got it. I got it now. Don't anybody talk to me. So I place <laughs> in scenes about, you know, she's going to various bookshops and her siblings are having these oblique discussions and, um, you know, eventually she has to admit to Joseph that she wrote naughty poetry. She was in a rebellious phase and it was good naughty poetry, but it's out there and it's going to surface at some point because there's still one copy she can't find. And at the end of the book, I'm spoiling the heck out of it. Joseph pulls a copy of the book out of his, this is my favorite poetry. But writing, going into that book, I had no idea. There was no poetry under discussion. And I certainly didn't know that Joseph had the last copy. And I, you know, my life flashed before my eyes. I was done writing. The book defeated me. Um, But I had to wander around at a conference full of librarians carrying their book bags before something in my subconscious said, it's a book, stupid. (laughs) And, oh, book, what a thought. I'm stuck. Uh, I read that. I read that book. And it was effortless, glorious, and you you hid your agony. I mean, it was just, it was a bliss to write, to read. Well, I am indebted to Donald Moss, the agent and writing coach, you know, who, who said to me, this is your process, you know, this is, and you're afraid you're going to hit the book that won't play and the well will dry up. 
It's not like that. It's like the Sorcerer's Apprentice. You pull a book out and two more will well up. You pull three books out and six more will well up. Well, it's not quite like that. But as long as I just keep thinking, Sorcerer's Apprentice, Sorcerer's Apprentice, I got this. It's going to come together. Righty, 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 righty. So far, the books have kept coming. And I do to a certain extent. It's just my process. It's like riding a horse. The horse can be having a panic beneath you. And you're thinking, I hope my life insurance is paid up. But your body has to say to that horse, oh, silly beast, come on now. Let's just pop over this jump. It's all fine. It's fine. It's great. The sun is shining. The birdies are singing. And I am just about losing. No, we're fine. And that's the way I write. Like, we're fine. We're fine. I didn't have any scenes when I went to bed last night. But this morning is a new day. And I use my little you know, neurological hacks and environmental hacks. And I, if I, the other thing I do is I have a slack day task list. Um, and uh, if it's a day when it's like, nope, no scenes for you today. Well, then that's a day to backlog blog posts. That's a day to, um, you know, you find other things to do that says to your mind, the writing is very important, but we're just not going to work on new scenes today. And I've been doing this 10 years and I still love it and it's still the way I work. However, I have been told that if you do this long enough, if you write long enough, you're going to find a book that forces you to go over to your dark side. So it could be the very next book I write is the one I outline. Dang. How did you find, how did you find the quarantine when you, uh, this, this concept of, um, of, of courting novelty is so gorgeous. Is did you, were you limited by quarantine to staying home to court your novelty? Well, yes, and I have traveled much and conquered, as Thoreau said. I have read and read and read and read and read, but uh, it was tough because I also like to travel. I like to go to the UK. I like to go anywhere that isn't home, and uh, there a certain sense of desiccation has set in, you know, of drying up. What um, a good word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And ossification. I stopped stretching. I stopped um, hugging my horse. I stopped wearing colors. I stopped singing. There are all kinds of ways that I had the deflector shields up because I was saving my energy to manage anxiety and to keep my courage going because I live alone. There's no support here. And um, it's been tough. And the, you know, slowly lowering the drawbridge has also been an interesting experience, you know, as we're trying to move away from lockdown mentality. I'm so glad this is recorded. I swear you speak in inspirational phrases. I can't write quickly enough. So I'm really glad this has been recorded. You're astonishing. Thank you. I love to talk about writing. Thanks go, you know, from me to you as well. You're pretty good at it, I'd have to say. I think you're pretty good at it. <laughs> if I write a book, it's going to be called My Book Hates Me. <laughs> <laughs> and authors are all going to get it. Authors will get it, but none of the readers How long will. is your editing process? How long is Sorry. it? Um, yes, yeah, so you, you write the book. Do you spend a lot of time editing and rewriting things? It's a sort of, a, uh, to use a fraught term, a daisy chain process um, in that I don't just give it the straight arm and write. I will write my scenes, read them over at night, read them over again the next morning, then write. Okay. 
And then um, you read the, put the thing in the vault. And before it goes to the copy editor, you get it out and read it all again. Comes back from the copy editor, you read it all again. Comes back from proofreader one, you read it all again. So there's an awful lot of polishing facets that goes on once the dirty draft is done. You mentioned proofreader one. You don't write a really dirty draft. You, you write and edit and write and edit and mold it all as you're yes. going along. Thank Do you, you use more than one proofreader? What did, what did you have? Pardon me? Do you use more than one proofreader? Uh, yeah. And I think this is uh, characteristic of the characteristic of the pandemic as well, that I am making more boo-boos in my writing and my proofreaders are missing more boo-boos. So oh. I try to um, proofreader one reads, I correct. Proofreader two reads, I correct. Proofreader three reads, I correct. Because there's also a problem with if you have two mistakes in a paragraph, they'll all catch the first one and all miss the second one. So I want them reading in series as opposed to parallel. <laughs> You're very cool. <laughs> all right. That's brilliant. Great idea. If you have time for it, you know, because that's three iterations and sometimes you don't have that luxury. And still get into the manuscript. They're not perfect. I want to ask about the book Hooked because I found one by Michael Moss called Food, Free Will and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. And I found one by Nir Al and Ryan Hoover called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. That's the one you want to read. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Hooked, how to build habit-forming products. Yeah, it's it yeah. called right. behavioral design, but what it means is manipulation, manipulating people. What is like for Amazon? What color of buy button are people most likely to click on? Where on the screen are they most likely to click on it? Um, you know, it's like we do our store loyalty cards. What they're looking at is... Um, what aisle do you buy the most products from? How much do you usually spend at once? Which two products do you spend together? And they are arranging the store and arranging their specials to for maximum manipulation of the person with the money. And that's us. Maybe I don't want to read it. Maybe, I, maybe I'm like to exist <laughs> of just how manipulated I am. Thank you, Grace. This was this was amazing. It was big fun for me too. I get to talk with writing buddies. <laughs> I just made all writing buddies because now I'm like, okay, let's do that. I'm going to do that too. And your your ten commandments <laughs> as I wrote them down: court novelty, write with a quill pen, write all these things that you said. Some of your things are very big brain, and some of your things are extremely practical. It makes a gorgeous. It makes a gorgeous mix. Gosh, you probably write a good novel. Hmm. Well, I'm I'm actually you know working on um, just a, a sort of a I don't you know Stephen King's on writing is so wonderful because it's part autobiography and part craft. Yep, and it just moves between the two like we're all having a beer wandering around the backyard with him, and um, I find that sort of conversational but somewhat didactic approach um, to be comfortable. He was a teacher. So that's, you know, that's what he is. It's uh, one of my, um, you know, when I say I have slack day projects Uh and one is sort of Mm -hmm. add to this list of how do you do what you do? How do you navigate this industry where um, there's so many people with very strong expressive language skills 
But if you listen and you watch, their receptive language skills aren't that hot. They're not that good at taking in information. They're not that good at analytical thinking. They're jabbering away and having a great time and using all the words. But when you ask your editor, what is the problem we're trying to fix? You know, your your editor doesn't even has to really sit on the question. And um, and until you catch on to the fact that there's this big disparity in a lot of, and it's true with lawyers too. You know, that a lot of them, they, they, they speak very good, but they don't integrate what you tell them. They don't recall it. Uh, they can't analyze it. In terms of uh, using the material that you put in front of them verbally, they're kind of toddlers. And I think when if you're going to be around other authors, once you catch on to that, the critique partners and the editors and the reviewers and the, you know, the people who are presenting the Bill workshops about all you have to do is make a list. You're not as vulnerable to the insecurities that they can plant in you. That's just one little insight. That's a good Thank God this is recorded. I think I'm going to play this over. What were the two phrases? Hippo, hippo something before you Hip- go to sleep? Hippocampic. And hypnopompic. And it just means waking up and falling asleep. Those are hugely creative times for me. I just didn't know they had names. I'm very happy for them. Yeah. And I bet you sleep with pen and paper beside the bed too. Do so I can get to sleep. Once the idea comes, if I don't write it down, I can't get to sleep. You're right. I do. Yeah, you have it. Oh, me and Grace Burroughs, we have something in common. We're like this, (laughs) man. We're like this. (laughs) I will have scenes play out in my head as I'm falling asleep, but I don't write them down. I I hope that they stay with me. <laughs> I write them down. I definitely do. If, I mean, you may have the brain that keeps that stuff, but for about 90% of us, they don't. You know, that stuff that happens in the drifty phases, it drifties right on away. And then it's gone until you can drift by it again. And, you know, particularly, I think that's another um, sort of, hit we've taken with the pandemic, we're also stressed. And the more stressed you are, the worse your recall. And, you know, so we feel like we're all getting stupid. We're not getting stupid. We've just been in a bunker for a year. And recall is one of the things that goes. We just need more. We just need to do more podcasts with grace. If the answer is we're never going to, we're never going to, you, you're a very juicy orange. We would like to squeeze you more. You're fabulous. <laughs> Well, if you want to, um, you know, if you get in a situation where you need some backlog podcasts, so that you know, what if so and so's tech fails or that kind of, I'm happy to oblige. Just give me a limit, you know, a, a topic to think about, um, and then we can put one one or two aside for the vault. Well, we're gonna we're gonna start with this concept of receptivity in editors and the publishing industry, and I think there's a lot there's a lot I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. Well, also the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, where people who know a little bit tend to be very confident. I am convinced, and I hope we're kind of off the air now, that I think... We're not. We're not. We're not. not. (laughs) Say it out loud. Do it. Yes. I am concerned that an awful lot of the marketing that is shoved at authors are people who have written one or two books, particularly men. The Dunning-Kruger curve says that when we have a little bit of expertise... We think we're all that in a bag of chips. 
And then gradually the light comes on and we realize this is harder than it looks and I'm not so smart. A little um, learning is a dangerous thing. Yes. And then at the end of the curve where we're truly expert and we are, we are it, that's when the imposter syndrome tends to set in. And, and we think this is fake. I don't deserve this. I haven't arrived. The other thing that happens is we don't realize how much we know how much we have put in the time, how much the expertise, you know, how long it took to learn it. So if you ask those high achievers like Nora, you know, what does it take? You get butt in chair, hands on keyboard. Lady, you know, that is really not very helpful. It's true, but not going to get you to where Nora is. She's trying to be helpful, but she's completely leaping over decades of hard work and good luck. Um, so between the, the high-end performers underestimating what they have done to achieve their success and the low-end performers overestimating how expert they are, it's very easy to think that everybody has got it and I don't. You know, especially there are more young guys presenting marketing schemes to authors. You know, all you have to do is this and our newsletter can get you to that and they have no clue how to market a book. You know, they might know how to lure a bunch of people onto a list that has no kind of click through, but it's, you know, so I think authors, you know, the, those of us who are what's left of the mid list, um, who are just trying to write good books and stay afloat between the foghorns who know very little and the high achievers who don't grasp you know, how steep the hill is, we can just lose all our confidence. And you know, I think this, this too needs to be, you know, we, we need to get this into the water supply. You're fine. You're doing great. You're smarter than you think. And it is harder than it looks. And you're not crazy. I think that's a perfect note to end on. I do too. <laughs> Except will you be my best friend forever? Yes. <laughs> yes. That's the perfect note to end on. And, and, we can have Grace back someday soon, yes. can't we, Mary? Absolutely. We need to. We have to talk marketing with Grace, clearly. <laughs> clearly. Uh, what are we talking about next week, Meredith Bond? We have various people lined up to talk to us, so we're not excited. Next week will be a surprise. Yes. Surprise! Because <laughs> we, have, we have Grace, and then uh, we're going to be talking with um, Allison Garcia, Allison K. Garcia, who writes Latina Christian Romance. And we're going to be talking with her about that and with what she's moving into, which would be which is going to be very interesting. So it's going to be a, a genre episode. Um, and then we're going to be talking with Jenny Kate, who is a marketing specialist. Excellent. <laughs> so Talk to all of them, and then we'll call Grace back and say, Grace, what did you think? <laughs> yes. yes, there we go. Well, you will send me links, right? So Absolutely. Willingly, yes. willingly. Um, to all the listeners, uh, please rate us and tell us if you like us. Make a comment on the writersblockpartypodcast.com or join the Discord server where Meredith and I go and write Meredith writes in the morning because she lives in Austria and I write in the evenings and we chat and we bitch and we complain and we moan and we have a lot to say. Sometimes. And we share writing tips and uh, BC Deeks, who is 
fantastic, and I love her very much. She was sharing how she creates her Bible and put a, a template up on the Discord server for anybody to look at and copy if they need it to, which was and how very do sweet. I, how do I become a part of your Discord server, Meredith Bond? Very easy. All you have to do is email me and I will email you the link. And my email address is Mary, M-E-R-R-Y, at MeredithBond.com. Awesome. Building our own little community of writers who are being told it's harder than people think, you're smarter than you know, and you're doing fine. And we're there to back you up. We're there to back you up. (laughs) We're there to to grab onto you as we're slowly going under. Ah! (laughs) Thank you, Meredith. And thank you so much, Grace. This was an amazing podcast for me. Thank you. It really was. Thank you so much, Grace. That's it for the Writer's Block Party this week. We don't want you getting so drunk on knowledge that you can't drive your laptop safely. But next week we'll be here before you know it, so check out the website at thewritersblockpartypodcast.com. One word. That's where you can find our archive of past podcasts and a place where you can get in touch with Mary and Prue or ask questions for the next podcast. Write with joy, friends, and see you next week.